The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As soon as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dear Lord, just prepare our hearts to hear your word, um, which should be everything to us, Lord. And uh, please may your spirit fill Josh in uh, bringing your word um, to our minds and hearts today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Have you ever been homesick before? I mean, just, you were gone from home for any length of time, and you just were dying to get back. I remember the first time I went on a missions trip, um, uh, 10 years ago or so, and I had three young kids at home, and Alyssa at home, and I was gone for two weeks. And uh, the, first, the first week was so busy. I mean, you had, hardly had a, a second to, to think. But w- the, the first day that things started to slow down, I realized how I was dying to get home. I, not in a bad way. I mean, I just, I, I needed to get away by myself for a bit and almost just process some, my, my emotions. I just was like, I'm not home. And we all probably know what that's like, certainly most children go through a phase where they just want to be around home. They want to be with mom and dad. Well, at the beginning of the book of First Peter, Peter tells us the, the people he's writing to. And he, he calls them elect exiles. Not just earthly exiles, but spiritual exiles. People that are away from home. They're elect. They're chosen by God. They're, God has graced them. God has poured out his love upon them. He's brought them to himself. He calls them children. He, he, he has poured out lavish grace so they're chosen, they're elect of God, but they're exiles. They're, they, they are, they're, they're strangers, they're foreigners. They are, uh, we might, a word that we hear now, nowadays quite a bit, refugees. They were away from home. And they were literally away from home. They were Christians that were dispersed into different regions, into what is now present-day Turkey in that area. But it's also, they also were foreigners and strangers and refugees spiritually, and so are we. Um, as exiles, and writing to exiles, Peter pushes them and pushes us to live in a radical way now, knowing that we are away from home. And he does this in a couple of different ways. He does this by weaving two themes throughout the book of 1 Peter. I mean, we see this over and over again. These two themes. And the, the first is the theme of suffering. Difficulties, trials, hardships. And if you live any length of time, you realize this life, this world, has them. And we all go through them. We go through big ones, we go through small ones. But we all go through hardship. There's suffering, there's, there's challenges. Peter probably specifically has in mind the idea of persecution. Pushback against Christians and the Christian faith and those who our followers of Jesus. But there's also, uh, the other theme that's weaved throughout the, the book of 1 Peter is the theme of Christ's return. Think of chapter 1 where it says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, pointing us forward. And these two themes, suffering and Christ's return, the end of, the end of days, the last days, these two themes serve to give us a certain homesickness, reminding us that we are exiles, that our status in this world, this isn't the only status we have, but one of the statuses we have in this world, in this life, is one of exile. And so it, it helps us to live in this tension that, yes, God pours out incredible blessing and we should be incredibly thankful, and yet also realize this is not our final home. This is not our final destination. 
Jesus is going to come again. He's going to put everything right. He's going to recreate the world and renew everything, and we're going to live with him forever and ever. But until then, we are refugees. We are exiles. C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He called it the gospel of homesickness. The gospel of homesickness. That the gospel is good news for us now, but it also, it also taps into that longing that we have to go home. And uh, that's, that's uh, what, where Peter takes us in the book of 1 Peter. He wants to remind us of this day, or excuse me, passage after passage. So we won't be addressing suffering today because that was last week and will be next week because those passages explicitly deal with that. Um, but remember, the context of 1 Peter is he's writing to believers that are enduring great hardship. And so it's clearly in our context. However, there's a clear connection to return of Christ in our passage. Verse 7 says, it starts with this, these ominous words. The end of all things is at hand. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? The end of all things is at hand, or I think the New American Standard Bible says, the end of all things is near. I mean, think, reach your hand up, it's just, it's at hand. It's right here. It's coming. Now, either Peter is confused, like, hey, he said this 2,000 years ago, clearly he got it wrong. Right? Or there's, some, or there's more than meets the eye in this phrase. Either Peter just, you know, just kind of wild-eyed, crazy dude saying, the end is near, the end is near. Or there's something more. And I think there's something more. I think Peter's referring to the entire period of time between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he sees this period of time as the last days or the end times. So, for instance, when Peter quotes the prophet Joel in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, I think it's verse 16 and 17. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. They were all filled with the Spirit. They spoke in tongues. There was this great crowd that came. Peter stood up and preached. And the first thing he said was, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, says the Lord, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. In the last days, what does that mean? This period of time we live in now. Peter's saying Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the Father. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. So he's he's with the Father, but he's coming again soon. And so in this period of time, the last days, the Holy Spirit is being poured out. But Peter's purpose is more than just giving us a chronology of the period of time in which we live, I think. I believe Peter, along with the rest of the New Testament authors, lived with a firm conviction that the consummation of all things was at hand, that they may even see it in their day. Jesus didn't tell them when he was coming back. He just told me he was going to come again. He was going to come to, he was going to, he was going to return again. So they knew that, but they didn't know when. So they thought it could be soon. It could be any moment, maybe not any moment, but it could be very soon. And this gave them a certain urgency in living. And you see that throughout the the New Testament. There's this serious urgency that is meant to strip away flippant, chipper, silly, not having fun, but just shallow ideas in living, shallow ideas about life and living. Peter, or Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, the Lord is at hand. James, in chapter 5 of his book, says in verse 8, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. The apostle John takes it a step further and says, children, it is the last hour. It's the last hour. Now, some might assume, well, that was spoken 2,000 years ago. How serious are we to take this? I mean, is, is God, what's he doing? Why is he taking so long? I mean, clearly his inspired authors who were filled with the Spirit and wrote these things thought it could be soon, and it's been 2,000 years. 
Well, Peter writes in his second letter, he says in the last days there's going to be scoffers. And here's how they're going to scoff. They're going to say, where is his coming? Ever since the beginning of time, things have continued on just as they always have. And Peter says, don't be deceived. He goes on to say later on in chapter 3, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. So we're like, it's been 2,000 years. To God, it's been two days. Two days. He's not slow in keeping his promise. Peter's purpose in starting off by saying the end of all things is at hand is not to help us predict events leading to the end or to whip us in some kind of end time eschatological frenzy. Rather, his agenda is to promote and inspire present faithfulness. Did you hear that? Jesus is coming soon. So be faithful now. Right? Jesus is coming soon. The end of all things is at hand. It's right upon us. And so, be faithful. In the present, right now. Peter wants us to maintain and live out our identity as exiles, as strangers, foreigners in this world. So how should exiles live faithfully in light of the imminent return of Christ? That we could see it in our day, in our lifetime. And I don't say that just because some feel like God told them that. I'm saying, according to the scriptures, we could see it in our lifetime. It's, if it's near, if it's at hand, we could see it. How do we live faithful? What does it look like to live with urgent faithfulness in the present? Peter gives us four strategies for living out the gospel. Living out this new life we have in Christ. In the present, with urgency in light of his coming. And I want to contend that each strategy Peter gives us is meant to be worked out and lived together, but not as hermits in isolation. Not off on our own, doing our own thing, having this relationship with God on our own, but together. And that's why the church is so essential. So, four strategies Peter gives us. This is how you live faithful in the present in light of Christ's coming with urgency. First, first strategy is sober and serious prayer. The first strategy Peter gives us as exiles longing for King Jesus to come is, as he says, to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that we can pray effectively. Here's what Peter says. The end of all things is at hand. We heard that, right? And then, therefore, the therefore is huge, okay? It tells us, here's what you need to do because the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. To be self-controlled is to be in your right mind. It literally means to curb your passions, Not passions in the sense of being a passionate person or someone who has passion for Jesus. Not that at all. But it means to not be carried away with emotional impulses all the time. Ever find yourself just kind of carried away with every whim of emotion? Up and down and here and there. Paul says, be self-controlled. Don't be like that. And then he says, be sober-minded. Of course, the opposite of being sober is to be drunk or to be intoxicated. Being drunk means to be under the influence of something, whether it's alcohol or something else. In the case of our text, I think Peter's saying this, be sober. Don't be intoxicated by this present age because it's coming to an end. Don't be intoxicated with something that is nearing its end. It's going away. Because the end of all things is at hand, Jesus is coming soon. This age is going to come to an end, so don't be drunk on it or in it. 
If you've ever interacted with someone who's drunk, and I have a number of times, and I have been on the other end of it as well, a long time ago, one thing is clear. Someone who's drunk has a hard time connecting with reality, don't they? They're just, they're not thinking clearly. They're under the influence. They're, enti- they're inebriated with alcohol. They just don't think clearly. They're not in touch with what is real. And Peter's saying, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't be so inebriated with this world that you're out of touch with what is truly real, that it is passing away. It's coming to an end, and Christ is coming soon. And so Peter says, don't be drunk with the world. Be sober. Don't be carried away by every emotional impulse. Be self-controlled. But remember, he says it's for the purpose of prayer. It's not just for the purpose of, um, well, it's aimed at something. Let me put it that way. It's aimed at the purpose of prayer. There are certain attitudes and mindsets that are just out of step with prayer. Silliness. uh, Not being in your right mind. Just kind of being... Uh, under the influence and drunk with this world, it's out of step with prayer. I mean, think about what prayer is. Think about what prayer is. Think soberly about what prayer is. Let's talk for a moment about what Christians say prayer is. It's the most amazing thing in the world. Christian prayer is something, there's no other religion on the face of the earth that claims to do what Christians do when they pray. Christians say there is this transcendent God who is holy, who is mighty and powerful and righteous, and he cannot look on sin. And we, mere human beings, have this amazing privilege to come before him, not to pray at a distance from him, not to throw up our prayers and hope they reach heaven someday, but to come right before him into his presence. Hebrews 4 says, drawing near with boldness to the throne of grace. That's what prayer is. And when we think about prayer in this way, all of a sudden it sobers us. It's like, wait, my goodness, I have an audience with the God of the universe? How amazing is this? I mean, he has his ears open to me. Peter tells us his ears are attentive to the cries of the righteous. I mean, he, it's like he leans down when I draw near in prayer. That's amazing. So think soberly about what prayer is, but think also soberly about this present world we live in with all of its evil and brokenness and heartache and pain. And pray. And also think soberly about the imminent return of Christ with its impending judgment on those who do not believe in him. And on you being gathered to him forever. And pray. It's not hard to see why praying together is so important. If I am a drunk and I'm a hermit, no one even knows, right? I'm isolated by myself. I can kind of live in my own, you know, um, what what are they, uh, other universe, and no one knows, and I'm just out there by myself. But when we gather together, I I don't know about you, but whenever I pray with someone else, well, other people, whether it's one or 20 people, I almost always find myself thinking more clearly. I almost always find myself helped tremendously. And I don't mean just like, I got a spring in my step now, that too. But thinking more clearly, having certain mindsets and ideas stripped away from me. It's like, no, that's not from the Lord. We gather together and we pray. And that ha- that's been my experience anyway. So therefore, because the end of all things is at hand, be sober. And serious, self-controlled for the sake of prayer.
Peter's second strategy is passionate love. Strong, earnest, fervent love. Living as exiles in this world, Peter says, passionately love one another. Verse 8 puts it this way, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says, above all. Could he put it any more plainly? This is preeminent. This is the most important thing. Above all, most importantly, this is the biggest idea Peter wants to get across here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It says, love one another, not moderately, but with great passion. Not, not half-heartedly, but with all of you. I love the way the New American Standard Bible puts it when it says, keep fervent in your love for one another. The word fervent gives this idea of being stretched out, being stretched. So to love fervently is to be stretched in the way that you love people. Right? To be stretched out is to be made uncomfortable. Right? Could you imagine that? If you were a rubber band, I know you're not, but if you're a rubber band and I stretch you out and stretch, 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 uncomfortableness, right? Love people that way. Love them to that degree. We are good. We are, we are good at loving moderately. We are good at loving abstractly, saying, I love people, I love everyone. I don't hate it. I love everybody. Love people so that you are stretched in your love for them. Let me put it this way, so that you need God's power to do it. So that it's not just in my own human resources, I'm loving people, and, but so that you need the power of God's spirit. Be stretched in your love for one another. Don't love a little, love all the way. Now, Peter doesn't leave us wondering what this looks like. He doesn't leave it abstract or nebulous or just kind of out there, but he brings it down on ground level for us he brings it down so that I think even a young child can understand this. He shows us what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. Here's how we stretch ourselves in our love for each other. We cover their sins. We cover sins. We don't seek to expose sins. We cover them. Love fervently because love covers a whole bunch of sins. I think this idea of covering sins means a couple of things, at least a couple of things. First, in 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's verse 5 or maybe verse 6, it says, Love does not keep a record of wrongs. What does love do instead? It covers them. I am confident. I am confident that my wife chooses daily, maybe hourly when I'm home, to just cover things. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm just going to cover that. And we should all seek to be like that. Love covers a multitude of sins. How many sins does it cover? How often do I cover them? It covers a multitude of sins when we love. And when you love this way, you never stop. You keep covering, you keep covering, you keep covering sin. Now let me ask you a question. Do you find yourself a record keeper of those who have wronged you? I find myself there sometimes. I do. Keeping track of the weak and the people who have wronged me, and sometimes my own kids, the disrespect or whatever, keeping track of them. Do you find yourself there? It doesn't mean that we don't address sins. It doesn't mean we don't address somebody when they wrong us. But the old man is a master accountant at keeping track of sins. 
remembering things from a long time ago, remembering small slights that the person who did it doesn't even know they did it. So I think Peter would say, stop doing that. Cover them. Love covers a multitude of sins. Instead of keeping account of sins, love them. Don't say I love them in the abstract. No, no. Love coming down to ground level where the rubber meets the road is you cancel the debt people owe you when they've wronged you. But I think there's another way in which love covers sins. James chapter 5 uses almost the exact same phrase or a phrase that is just the same as Peter does. Here's what he says. These are the last two verses of the book of James. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Love doesn't watch people walk away and wander away from the truth and serves them right. They're reaping what they've sown. Love pursues them. Love seeks to turn them back to the truth. And this kind of love covers a multitude of sins because we bring them back to the Lord who forgives, who is rich in mercy to forgive. The blood of Jesus paid for it. Is there someone in your life who has wandered into sin so far and they've sinned against you so grievously that you are done with them? Or you think you might be? Don't be. Love them instead. Pursue them. Go after them. Seek to turn them back to the truth that is found in Christ. I was thinking yesterday morning and again last night, what does it say when we are unloving and harsh and hold on to grudges? What does it say when we keep a record of sins? What does it say when we bring them up? What does it say when we seek to expose people's sins? What does it say when we don't love the way Peter tells us to here? Well, at a certain level, it it, it tells us that we don't understand the gospel as clearly as we ought. At a certain level, it, it, it tells us we don't know God's love as deeply as he wants us to. Right? When the gospel goes deeper into our hearts, we will love this way. I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll be something organic. It'll be something that comes from the inside out. When the gospel goes deeper into us, the love of God has been shed abroad by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. When that goes deeper into us as we understand the good news of Jesus Christ more and more and the lavish love that's been poured out upon us, we will be empowered. We will find the resources to love other people that we don't have in ourselves. We will love all the way down to the bottom of our toes and out to our fingertips from head to toe when the love of God in Christ goes deeper into us, revealed in the gospel of Jesus. We won't hold anything back. We will be stretched beyond our capability in the power of the Spirit to love. And who doesn't want that? No one here? I do. I need it. Maybe I'm the only one here that needs this. I need this. Even yesterday, I was reminded of how much I need this. We will love massively. We will love so massively. We will cover a multitude of sins. We will see it as our mission in life to see just how many sins we can cover. Overlook, forgive, bring people back to Jesus. Psalm 130 says, if you, O Lord, I think it's Psalm 130. I didn't look it up this morning, but around there anyways. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who, O Lord, could stand? 
The answer is obvious. Nobody, not one of us, and I would, I would go so far as to say if he kept a record of sins yesterday, I'm not talking about just our life sins, I'm saying what happened yesterday. We don't see everything. We're not perfect yet. Not one of us could stand. But with God, there's forgiveness. Psalm 103 says, however, that God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't keep a record of them. He removes them. How far is the east from the west? Long ways. They're nowhere to be found. Such that, as Hebrews tells us, God remembers our sins no more. It's quoting Jeremiah 32. What did he do with them then? They were laid on Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our sins. Our mountain of sins were laid on his shoulders. He bore them. What was God's motivation? Love. 1 John 4.10 And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. The blood of Jesus was poured out, the wrath of God satisfied, so all of our sins could be covered by His blood. And this is God's love for us. Our sins are nowhere to be found. God's love could find no higher expression than Christ crucified on the cross. God's love could not be opened. God's heart of love could not be opened wider than this. God could go to no greater lengths to show us his love than this. We will never plumb the depths of his love that is found in Christ crucified for us. Octavius Winslow expresses this in an amazing way. Sounds like a lot of action there. (laughs) Fist fight in the nursery. (laughs) Not with the workers. I trust. (laughs) Um, Octavius Winslow expresses this powerfully. Listen to these words. The death of Jesus was the opening and the emptying of the full heart of God. It was the outgushing of that ocean of infinite mercy that heaved and panted and longed for an outlet. It was God showing how he could love the poor, guilty sinner. And then he asked this question, what more could he have done? What more could God do? The end of all things is at hand. So above all, above all you do, love one another by covering a multitude of sins. Third strategy, happy and sincere hospitality. The third strategy for living in this age as exiles in view of the end of all things is to show happy and sincere hospitality. Here's here's the way Peter puts it. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. To show hospitality means, to, means more than just hosting a dinner every once in a while. That's good, but it means more than that. It's a lifestyle of openness and gener- generosity to, to others. It's just being outward facing and an open and generous heart toward them. Hospitality is to be extended to all people, not just those like us. In fact, the word, the word translated hospitality is made up of two words. One that means to be friendly and the other one that means strangers. To be, to be friendly to strangers. So it's not just gathering with people that we like and they're just like us, they look like us, they dress like us. It's not that at all. It's to be hospitable or generous to all people. It means to be friendly to those who are different. Finally, hospitality implies meeting the needs of others at my own expense. That's what it means for you and I to be hospitable is to meet others' needs, even when it costs us. 
The early church showed breathtaking hospitality when they, they would even do things like they would sell properties. They would, they would bring the money and it would be distributed to anyone who had need. Peter gives an important qualification though. He doesn't just say show hospitality. He says, do it without grumbling. That seems kind of strange. Why would anyone throw a dinner party and bring people to their house and then complain to them that they're there? Has has that ever happened to you? I hope not. (laughs) Uh, I think here's what Peter means. The the idea of grumbling, it it implies being secretly complaining secretly in your heart. To, to secretly murmur and, show, and, and secretly have displeasure. So he says, show hospitality without secretly begrudging it. There is a huge temptation. I, I feel it. I feel it. To look a certain way and not care as much about actually being that way. Do you know what I mean by that? Does that make sense? To look like you're hospitable, but in your heart you're not at all. We as followers of Jesus, as exiles in this world, we should care a million times more about actually being hospitable than merely looking like we are. It's what what we call hypocrisy, right? Or pretentiousness. Pretending. Hospitality is especially important as we live at the end of all things. When hardship and difficulties increase, our togetherness and generosity with one another is increasingly important. Here, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, encourage one another and even more as you see the day approaching. As you see the day coming. As you see the day on the horizon Do this even more. It's even more important as we see, as Peter puts it, at the end of all things or as we see Christ's return nearing. When Christians aren't hospitable in this way, there's a huge problem. There's a huge problem. We lie about God. We we give the impression that God is stingy with his resources, with his time with his grace, with his blessing. We give the impression that God saves and loves those, us, people, because he is compelled to do it from something outside of himself. Like they twisted his arm or they, you know, put the right amount in the pop machine or something like that. And therefore, we need to have the gospel go deeper into our hearts so that we come face to face with the God who's overflowing with generosity. It says in in, in Romans chapter 8, he didn't even withhold his son. He withheld, he didn't even withhold his own son. He didn't spare even Christ from us. How generous is that? Very generous. He gave his son in infinite mercy, infinite grace to bring strangers and foreigners into his family. That's hospitality. And he didn't do it. He didn't do it because he had to. This is why grace is grace. This is why grace is so important for us to understand that we can do nothing. We have done nothing. We never will do anything to ever merit or deserve God's lavish grace being poured out upon us. He did not save us. He didn't bring us into his family. Us, strangers, right? Strangers to the promises. Strangers to grace. Strangers to all of it. Strangers to salvation. He didn't bring us close to himself and into his family because he had to. He did it because his heart is overflowing with happy generosity for the undeserving. 
The end of all things is at hand. So, show hospitality to one another. Happy hospitality. Sincere hospitality. Generous. Open your heart generously to others. Finally, the fourth strategy Peter gives us for living as exiles near the end of all things is he wants us to use our gifts to minister to one another. Verse 11 and, or 10 and 11 says this, As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength which God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love the assumption made here. It doesn't say if there's anyone among you who has a gift or if there are extraordinarily gifted people among you, tell them to use their gifts for the benefit of everyone else. What does it say? As each one has received a gift. You hear that? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ? Do you have the Spirit dwelling within you? Is there any ungifted person then who is a follower of Jesus and dwelt by the Spirit of God? Anyone? Is there any ungifted? Can you think of anyone who would be considered ungifted in that category? Peter couldn't conceive of it. As each one has received a gift, each one has received a gift. You've received one. You've been gifted. I, I don't, I'm not sure Peter's saying you only have one. Okay? I'm not sure that's, he wants us to go there necessarily. But you have been gifted. You've received at least a gift. What should you do? It's very simple. Use it. NASB says employ it. Put it to work. Use the gift that God has given you. Look for opportunities. What are these gifts? These gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 12, are manifestations of the Spirit. Peter tells us they are, they are, we are given grace by God and we are dispensers of grace. That's what the gifts are. We receive a gift and we give it to someone else. I think it's an amazing thing to consider that God wants us to be conduits of his grace. It comes down to us and flows through us in order to benefit and bless and build up everybody else. He says when we do this, we are good stewards of his grace. Good stewards, a good manager of God's grace. The steward is a manager. We manage it almost seems strange to talk like that, but that's what Peter says, a steward of God's grace. He's, he's entrusted things to us. He's poured his spirit out upon us. He's given us his grace and wants us to be stewards of his grace. I love how he says his varied grace. doesn't come in one color. It's like this multicolored, multifaceted grace. That looks different coming from you than it does coming from Amanda. I was pointing over here. Gary and Amanda. It looks different coming from different people. Same God. Same source of grace. Coming upon, filling individuals and flowing through them to others. It's, it's amazing. There is great diversity in these gifts. And there, it is meant to be that way. Now, this is to be done in a certain way so that it points to God and doesn't reach a dead end on us. And so here's what Peter says, verse 11. Whoever speaks, if you have a speaking gift, if you teach, you teach in Sunday school, you teach a Bible study, if you have a gift of prophecy or you like to speak words of encouragement, speak the utterances of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak utterances of God. Let him seek to speak God's words and not just say things. 
seek to speak the words in reliance upon the Holy Spirit and in step with the truth of Scripture. Whoever serves should serve in the lively faith that as we serve, God is supplying the strength right now. And that's why I think, I think that's how we're supposed to serve. Like, I'm going to serve, and I'm doing this mindful upon relying upon God, His supply, His strength, so that as I'm serving, God is serving. When we do this, our gifts are not used to show how clever we are or how sacrificial we are, how clever we are in our speech or how how sacrificial we are in our service, but they show how wise and gracious and powerful Jesus is. And that's the point. That's the point. Right? That's what Peter says. Serve and speak in, the, in this way so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The end of all things is at hand. So minister the gift you have received for the good of one another. What would it look like? What would it look like if we, the, the, the hour and a half or two hours we're together on Sunday mornings or when we gather in homes, if everyone went there saying, I've received a gift. I'm supposed to use that here and looked for opportunities to do that. And we're just waiting for certain people to do certain things, or, but went there looking for chances and opportunities to use their gift for the glory of God, certainly in order, all of that, whatever, but, but looked for opportunities to use, employ the gift that God had given, that God has given, or the gifts that God has given to you. The end of all things is at hand. And so as exiles, how do we live? How do we live? We want to be sober-minded and self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. Serious, sober prayer. We want to, above all, love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We want to be hospitable, genuinely, happily, not begrudgingly, And we want to be empowered by the Spirit so that we can serve one another with His strength and the giftings He's given to us. What happens if we as a church live this out, this reality out to the fullness that the Spirit enabled us to? I believe three things would happen that we all want to see. We all want to see these things, no doubt. God would be magnified. God would be magnified. We'd come in and be like, man, God is here. God is here loving. God is here showing generosity. God is here serving through his people. God would be magnified. The people of God would be blessed. You, we would be so blessed. And it would be a witness to those who don't yet know Jesus as king. Who's coming soon? What's that? Sure. So what would happen if we as a church lived out this reality in the fullness or the fullest ability that the Spirit enabled us to? We would, God would be magnified. The church would be blessed. And outsiders who don't yet know Jesus would receive a powerful witness. We're exiles. We're not home yet. This is how exiles live. This isn't, all, this isn't everything, but this is how Peter wants exiles to live in the last days, near the end of all things. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says, I'm writing to elect exiles. In verse 2 he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, Listen to this. In in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
and for sprinkling with his blood. That, that phrase, in, in the sanctification of the Spirit. We are, that's, the, that's what God is doing. That's what, that's what Peter's talking about here, living out this life we've been given in Christ as the Spirit empowers us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your grace upon grace upon grace that has been lavished upon us in Christ. I thank you that even though we are exiles, we don't have to live like an earthly refugee, afraid, wondering if we'll ever make it back to our homeland. We have firm confidence that we indeed will. For you tell us in your word to set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us to understand your word, to be obedient to it, and to empower us to be obedient to it so that Jesus is magnified here among us, so that your people gathered here are richly blessed, and so that we are a stronger and more clear witness of Jesus Christ, our soon coming King. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. If you feel so inclined, this would be a great time to rise up and bless each other as he has given you a gift to do so. You're dismissed.